unofficial launch of the Protestant Reformation was on October 31st, 1517, when an obscure monk nailed his 95 theses to the church door of Wittenberg, Germany. This sparked a movement that changed the entire world as we know it. The good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us had been distorted for hundreds of years under the human rule of the church. The gospel was all but lost. It was a dark time. But then, in the 16th century, the Lord opened the eyes of many and used certain men and women to recover, clarify, and proclaim the true message of salvation in Jesus Christ. The very message that had for so long been We are made right with God in Christ alone, made known through scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and to the glory of God alone. This is a radical reformation. Well, hey, good morning. Um, as Molly said, I am Paul. I am the pastor at our Sunnyland campus, just a few miles away. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, before we uh, get in, I, I want to say one quick thing, and then I want to pray, and then we'll get into the message. First of all, it's going down next weekend, and so uh, Sunnyland is going to kill you guys when it comes to chilling. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm trusting that you guys will bring your best. And, uh, and then you will go home crying. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, it'll be a good time, so you, you need to make sure you come over and visit with us next week. It's going to be a great time. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the message this morning. Lord God, we thank you uh, for this time uh, that you've gathered us together in this place. And Lord, we are just asking now that as we open up your scriptures, we talk about what you have for us, Lord, that, uh, that you would change us from the inside out, that there would be transformation all over us. Uh, we we want to be different, better people, um, the people, Lord, that you're calling us to be. And so, Lord, I pray that that, that happens this morning. Lord, I also pray that, uh, that every word that comes out of my mouth would not be from me, but from you. And so, God, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right. So I was listening to a message a couple weeks ago from a pastor in Orlando, Florida, and he was telling uh, this story. He said, as a pastor, oftentimes he has to go and do hospital visits. And as doing hospital visits, one of the things that he has noticed in recent years has been this thing where hand sanitizers have been showing up all over hospitals now. They're in hallways and in rooms and in elevators, and there's this, this, this movement of hand sanitizer everywhere when you step into a hospital. And he thought that when he first saw those showing up, he thought that those were being put in place so that um, visitors and doctors and nurses would not get sick. That whatever the patients had going on would not be transferred to the, the visitors, doctors, and nurses. What he found out, though, was that was not the case. The reason hand sanitizer became everywhere in hospitals wasn't so that the patients would get the uh, visitors sick, but the, well, vice versa, that the doctors, nurses, and visitors wouldn't get the patients sick. See, one of the things they're discovering is that there's an epidemic in hospitals right now with infection. And a lot of times patients that are coming into the hospital stay in the hospital longer because they're battling infections, or patients that are going into the hospital actually get sicker in the hospital because of all the germs that people like you and me, doctors and nurses, bring in. And so there's this, this hand sanitizer thing happening. But hospitals in the midst of that have been working really hard to try to implement processes and procedures to reduce infection. Because if they can reduce infection, 
life gets better, people get well, uh, life flourishing happens. Now, there's a hospital in particular in Michigan that's, that's implemented five things, five steps that have been incredibly successful in reducing infection. They've implemented five steps, and by implementing these five steps, life has flourished, right? People are getting well, life is getting better, and costs for the hospital have gone down. Those five things, if, if every doctor, if every nurse would do these five things, it would lead to better life for patients. What they found out, though, was those five steps were nothing complicated. In fact, they were really, really simple. For example, step one, wash your hands with soap and water before interacting with the patient. That was step one. Step two, before you treat the patient, the part of the patient you're going to treat if you're doing an operation or a uh, procedure, treat the area uh, that you're interacting with, like wash that person, disinfect that area before you do the treatment. Now, these are kind of like, duh, you know, kind of moments, right? Like, this is really, really silly. But what they discovered was this. The hospital made a checklist, and they made sure that every doctor, every nurse followed exactly all five steps. Because what they discovered was that 33% of doctors and nurses would skip one step. And when they skipped even just one step, infections would go up. But if they followed all five to a T, then infections would go down. Life would flourish. Now, you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about in church this morning? Well, we are starting, uh, we're in actually week two of a brand new series here tonight called A Radical Reformation. And that series is based on five statements. Five things. And they are five things that if you and I would also remember them, if we would live our lives by them, if if they would be statements that wouldn't just be statements, theological statements, but statements that we actually uh, actually followed in all of our lives, guess what? Life gets better. Life gets longer. It becomes human flourishing. Basically, just like the doctors following those five steps, us following these five statements, foundations of our faith, they're simple, but they're hugely profound for human flourishing. And those five statements are, they're mentioned in the video, right? Christ alone. Scripture alone, grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Now, those five statements were not something that we created. It wasn't something Russ and I got together and said, hey, what are the five foundational statements of our faith? Let's talk about those. No, these statements were created about 500 years ago, uh, statements that turned the world of Christianity upside down. As Russ mentioned last week, uh, this past Tuesday celebrated the 500th anniversary of something we call the Reformation. As the video said, during the 1500s, the church was in need of radical changes. Things had gotten messed up from the faith that was founded by Jesus and led by those early disciples. The church in the 1500s had gotten incredibly corrupt and powerful, and practices and beliefs that were practiced didn't align well with the message and the mission of Jesus Christ. And during this time, there was a monk who lived in Germany, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, a man devoted to Jesus, was pouring over the scriptures, and what he started to see was what he was seeing in the Bible, the faith that, that Jesus kind of founded, that the disciples made go forward, and what the church in the 1500s was teaching were completely disconnected from one another. What he found was what the church was teaching and what, what the faith should have been about were, were so disconnected, and it kind of ticked them off. He got a little angry about it. 
But he wanted to, he didn't want to really create a separate religion. He just wanted to reform the church. And so he wanted to get some leaders talking about this. And so he made up these 95 statements, some correctives that he thought the church should implement. And he nailed them to the bulletin board of the day just to get the leaders talking. And that bulletin board happened to be a, a door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so as he just kind of put those up just to kind of get people talking, God used those 95 statements to spark an amazing movement of God, in which case the church went through amazing reforms and, and kind of rediscovered what it was that our faith is really about. And it was out of that movement then that those five statements came into creation. Now, as Russell mentioned last week, um, in this series, we're not just talking about each of those statements. It, it could be really boring uh, to just talk through those things as we just giving you a history lesson of the Protestant Reformation and what Martin Luther did. Even really boring to give you some lesson in theology. As Russ said last week, we're, we're not doing this series to do those things. We're doing this series because the church is always in need of a reformation. We often, too, forget the foundations of our faith. We, too, at times need to be reformed in our thinking about what a faith in Jesus is all about. We, too, need a radical reformation. You do, I do. We need to be reminded of these amazing things. So this is very true of where we're going this morning. Last week, Russ talked about that our salvation is found in Christ alone. He, he started us off, started you guys off talking about in Christ alone, that Christ alone is the source of our salvation. There is no other way for life to happen in the here and now, and no other way for life to happen for eternity apart from Christ. He is the centerpiece of our faith. It is only through Christ that you and I are saved. Well, this morning we're going to dive into that next statement. And the next statement is all about where we get the message of Christ. Christ is the foundation, but where do we get the message of Christ? And so this morning we're going to dive into the statement sola scriptura. It's Latin. We like Latin. Basically, it means uh, scripture alone. It means scripture alone. Sola alone, scriptura, scripture, scripture alone. And the statement really says this. We are made right with God through the revelation of scripture alone, meaning it is the message of scripture. It's the message of the Bible alone, which communicates the manner in which we're saved. It is the message of the Bible alone that communicates ultimate truth about who God is and who you and I are, and how we can be restored to a right relationship with Him. It is the Bible, and the Bible alone, which communicates the ultimate truth about who Jesus is. The Bible is the ultimate source, the highest source for the message of our faith. It is the Bible, the Bible alone, that has ultimate authority to speak to us the message of God, how we find Him, how we live our lives in Him. Now, this was a problem in Luther's day. Because in Luther's day, there were conflicting viewpoints. There was conflicting people who had authority to speak as to the manner of salvation. There were different voices in the culture who said, one voice would say, well, this is the way you find your way to God. You had councils of the church who said, this is the way you find your way to God. You had the leader of the Catholic church, the Pope, who said, this is the other way you find your way to God. You had kings and queens declaring yet another. And oftentimes, these things contradicted each other. And each of them would say, well, I have the authority from God. I am God's messenger. I have the ability to speak. I have the best information about how salvation works. But as Russ said last week, the, the goal of the series is not throwing shade on the Catholic Church. That's not our plan because here is the truth. 
don't we live in a culture very much like that as well? Aren't there conflicting voices that we hear in our ears that tell us what it means to live for God? Where salvation comes from? Don't we have many sources of truth that we listen to, that we buy into? And don't we, don't we really buy into that? Well, that sounds good to me, or this looks good to me, and that's our source of truth. We very much are living in the same kind of culture. And we often look to other sources in the world about what it means to live in a right relationship with God. Instead of trusting and believing in Scripture alone, we trust all kinds of different sources for our faith. We might see a movie about heaven being real. And we trust that to tell us about what heaven is like. We might listen to religious leaders about what godliness looks like, and we trust them over what the Bible says. We might trust our church tradition. Well, we've always done it this way. And we trust that over what's being taught in the Bible. We even listen to things in our culture or what the Bible communicates about marriage, about sex, about relationships, about even how we find God or who is saved. We listen to the messages even of our identified political affiliation rather than the truth of Scripture. We even trust what we think over what the Bible communicates. The reality is we, too, have many different sources of truth that we buy into. Now, that's not to say that there is no truth in some of those things. That's not to say there's no truth in culture, that there's no truth in tradition, that there's no truth in our political parties, although probably very little. But the question often for us is, are they the source of truth, or are they an ultimate truth? Are they just a source of information, or the ultimate source of our relationship with God and with others? There's a pastor in Chicago, a guy named Bill Hybels, the pastor of a large church up there called Willow Creek Community Church. Bill tells a story of meeting a guy who talked about that he thought that believing the Bible as a source of ultimate truth was rather silly. Hybels asked this guy, okay, so if the Bible is kind of, trusting the Bible is kind of silly, how do you live your life? He said, well, I read somewhere that you should do what just feels right. Hybels says, well, you know, that sounds great. Where did you read that? The guy couldn't remember the author. And then Hybels asked him, well, did the author write anything else? The guy said, well, you know what, I, I don't know. Then Hybels boldly said to him, so you're saying to me that you make every decision about your life. You have made your source of truth to be based on something you read that you don't even remember the guy's name. And you don't know that if in his next book he completely said, you know what, I was wrong and changed his mind. But for so many of us, that's how we live our lives, isn't it? Someone says something, that sounds good to me. And so we grab hold of it, don't we? That sounds good to me. But what Martin Luther came to find was that wasn't the way to live life. It, it should be based on Scripture alone. And, you know, truthfully, we believe that as a church. And our website, if you go to the unitechurch.org, on the website, there's a statement we have about the Bible. And it says this, we believe, up there on the screen, yeah, we believe that the Bible is the word of God, fully inspired and without error in the original manuscripts, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and con conduct. We, meaning we believe as a church that the Bible is not some dusty book. It's not just some words on a page, but it is fully inspired by God. 
that it is without error, meaning that there is no fault in what it intends to communicate. And that it was written through the hands of men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct, meaning it has the supreme authority to communicate the manner in which we connect with God. And therefore has supreme authority to, to give us guidance in how we live our lives in relationship with Him. Has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. This means, this means that it's not my words that have supreme authority. It's not the government's words or my family's words or my faith tradition's words that have supreme authority. It is the word of God that has authority in our lives. Now, this is not to say that those things do not have authority. The government has authority. But if the government says one thing in the Bible another, it's the government that is wrong, not the Bible. If I say one thing and the Bible another thing, it's not the Bible that is wrong. It means I'm wrong. If my family says one thing and the Bible says another thing, it's not that the Bible is wrong. My family is wrong. If my faith tradition says one thing and the Bible says another thing, it's not that the Bible is wrong. My faith tradition is wrong. See, the reality is that the Bible is the ultimate source as to the manner in which we connect with God and live our lives in service to Him. Now, as I say all of that, that's basically my introduction that long introduction. I know for some of you as we talk about this, as you're newer to this thing called Christianity, maybe, maybe you've been in, in this thing called Christianity for a while, and this is a lot to take in. Because, because there's some things in the Bible that we have a hard time dealing with, don't we? There's some things that the Bible communicates that mess with us, that we don't like very much, that make us feel uncomfortable. And, and so all of us, I think, at times, we pick and choose, don't we? There's certain passages, certain verses. Ah, that one, I'll live my life with that. That one I don't like so much. I'm throwing that one out. Don't we kind of all do that? We, we wrestle with the Bible. And so I get it. Some of you in this room are skeptical of what we're saying. And you're thinking, why would I ever, ever live my life according to some old dusty book? Well, this morning I want to give you three reasons why I think that you can, um, why you can live this, this word out where it can be an ultimate source. But before I do that, let me, let me just say this. The reason we believe that statement is because we believe that when people really live their life according to this, real human flourishing happens. When people live our lives according to this, life really happens. See, I don't believe for one instant that God is trying to beat us up in this book. I don't believe for one instant that God wants what's worst for us. See, I believe that God wants what is best for us. And sometimes what he says is best for us in the word of God contradicts what we think is best for us. Sometimes what God says in his word is different than what the culture says is best for us. But that's not because God wants what's worse for us. God wants what's best for us. He wants us to flourish. I'm reminded of Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, the author says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step, step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. It says blessed. Blessed is another, it's a biblical fancy kind of theological word. It means happy. Happy is the one who does not what, do evil, is what he's saying. Who stands in the way of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, right? He's saying those that don't do evil. But then he says in verse 2, but whose delight, but whose delight, that is who those that are excited about, who are in love with the law of the Lord. Now, the law of the Lord is just basically talk, another way of saying the Bible. 
the Bible. The person who delights in the Bible, who meditates on it day and night, who has placed the Bible as the ultimate source of truth in their life, they are blessed, they are happy. The psalmist goes on to say in verse 3, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. He's saying those that delight in the Bible, that, that, that understand this idea of Scripture alone, right, are like trees planted by streams of water. It, it, it's a tree that, that is flourishing, that is nourished, that, that has amazing fruit being poured out from it. They, they, they prosper. And so the Bible communicates that, that those that, that understand this idea of Scripture alone are one that, that life just gets better. And so let me talk about those three things if you're still skeptical. Those that are wondering, well, that, I don't know if I really want to live by that. Let me give you three things that I think can help us to place the Bible as a supreme authority in our life. Especially for those that are maybe doubting that you'd live your life that way. The first is what the Bible communicates of itself. Of what the Bible communicates of itself. In, in a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, if you want to follow along, there's notes in your in the Bible app. I think you can follow along. This is kind of the, the, prime, um, uh, the, the prime passage about Scripture in the Bible. But in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, it says, it says this. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice he says in verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Right? He says it is God-breathed. That, is, that, that is, means that it's not written by men. But that it was written under the inspiration of God himself. That, that God spoke the words into human heads and minds. And they recorded the words on paper. And, and so the Bible it says of itself that it was not written by human hands. But it was God's word to us. 2 Peter chapter 1 says the same thing. It says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture. That's a, fr a funny phrase. It basically means the truth of scripture. The no truth of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What, what he's saying is that these were not words that were just created by men. That the Holy Spirit, God himself, was, was speaking these words into human hands as they recorded them. So that means that this is God's word to us. God breathed words to us. And so listen, there's an application in this for us. It means these are not just words on a page. It's God speaking to us. God's message to us. I'm reminded of a story of a youth pastor. There was this youth pastor who was trying to teach his youth about the importance of God's word. So in one youth group meeting night, he, he filled uh, the place with a bunch of chairs around the room. And he placed one chair in the center of the room. And on each of the chairs on the outside of the room, he placed a small piece of paper which had some words written on it. 
When the youth entered the room, he asked them to sit on the outside chairs, and he asked for a volunteer. After a few moments, a young girl raised her hand. She went to the chair in the center of the room. She put on the blindfold, and she sat down. The youth pastor asked her, what's going on in your life right now? Slowly, she answered, well, truthfully, some days are really hard. There are days when I just don't feel very happy. There are days when I feel all alone, like no one cares for me. There are days when I feel like I just don't want to go on, like maybe life is not worth it. The room got silent. Even the youth pastor didn't know what to say. They were all stunned and at the honesty and despair that this young girl had just shared. There was silence. Then one person picked up a piece of paper and read, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Psalms 28, 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to him in song. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. They finished reading those words and the young girl removed the blindfold from her face. Tears are strolling down her face. She looked up at the youth pastor and the youth around the room and she said it's just wonderful hearing those words. I just wish that God spoke to me that way. The youth pastor paused for a moment and looked at her and said, He just did. He just did. It's God breathed words to you. God breathed words to you. And because they're God breathed words, we can go back in the text in, in verse 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy. It says, What? Well, All scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the text says that because of this, that it is useful for teaching, right? It's useful for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That it's useful in changing us to become more like Jesus, but also in pointing us to Jesus. And I love verse 17. And verse 17 says that, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Put it another way, so that you and I might become whole people, thoroughly equipped, that we may become all that God has called us to be. And, and so it is, it God breathed words to us. God wants us to flourish. He wants the best possible version of us. And the manner in which he does this is he communicates his word to us so that we can trust him. 
We can trust it because of what it says about itself. That it is God-breathed words. But that's not the only reason we can trust it. We can also trust it. The second reason is because it is reliable. Now, I don't have a ton of time to go in this. If you want to learn more, there's a message on our website from, I think, two summers ago in a series we did called Skeptics Wanted. And there's a series, there's a, a message in there on the Bible. But let me just give a quick sum, summation of that, that message. There are a couple of things that I think we can grab hold onto that helps us understand that it's reliable. One of the things that helps us understand that the, the Bible is reliable, and I'm not talking about a supernatural standpoint, I'm just talking about from a literary standpoint. One of the amazing things about the New Testament is that it was written relatively quickly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Nearly just, maybe just 20 to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the first New Testament works were created. What's amazing about that is that you would think if it was written during that time, which it is, you know, all the best archaeologists say that it is, if it's written during that time, you would think that there would be eyewitnesses around that time that would write something else and say, hey, what these people have written is wrong. Jesus, not really a dude, didn't really go to a cross, never really died, didn't rise again. You would think there would be eyewitnesses that would come out in droves that would say, they're lying. What's amazing about that is that we have none of those works. We have none of those works. There is no evidence of any text outside the Bible that are refuting what the Bible communicates. In fact, there's outside sources outside the Bible that actually back it up, that say Jesus was really a guy. A Jewish historian named Josephus said Jesus was really a guy. He really died on a cross. He really was buried in a tomb, and his fathers really said he rose from the dead. So there are outside sources that back up what the Bible says, but there's no outside sources that deny what the Bible says from that time period. In addition, one of the other things that literary scholars will look at is, is the text reliable, meaning uh, is it accurate? Is what we have today close to what was written during the time of Jesus? What's amazing is if you look at the literary evidence for the Bible, it is like no other literary work. It is incredibly reliable. Let me explain. So um, one of the things that literary scholars will often do is when they're trying to prove if a text is reliable and close to the original, is they look at all of the copies of the text and just see how much changes over the decades. Okay? And the number of copies you have, the more copies you have of the ancient text, the more reliable it seems. And what's amazing is in the New Testament, we have about... 5,565 partial or complete portions of the New Testament that go back way, way old. And if you include the Latin Vulgate, which was an early translation of the Bible into Latin, and other early translations, the number of ancient New Testaments is about 25,000 copies. What's amazing about that is if you compare these copies alongside, there's very little that changes from one copy to Meaning as it was recorded and copied and passed over generation to generation, very little has changed in it. And nothing that changes any meaning. It might be a little you know, letter here or a letter there basically that changed. But it's very, very reliable. Ancient, ancient uh, scholars, ancient scribes were incredible in making sure that the text was perfect as it was transed down from generation to generation. Now, as I mentioned that, anyone in school ever read the Iliad by Homer? Have to do that maybe high school? One of you. Okay, a couple of you. Um, I bet none of your teachers 
in high school ever said that the Iliad wasn't good to read because we don't have enough copies of it and it wasn't reliable. But no one ever said, well, this is the Iliad, but we're not sure Homer wrote it, or we're not sure that these were his actual words, or we're not even sure if what we have is close to what Homer would have written. I mention the Iliad because of the other ancient documents when it comes to sources, it is second to the Bible. In the Iliad, we only have 643 copies of it. It's second to the Bible, and we only have 643 copies of it. And, and so here's what's amazing. Nobody, no literary scholar will look at the Iliad and go, well, it's just not true. So why do we do the exact same thing with the Bible when it, it's incredibly uh, more accurate and has a ton more ancient copies than the Iliad? And so just from a literary standpoint, we can trust that this Bible is, this, this work is different than any other book. And, and so listen, it's reliable from an eyewitness standpoint. It's reliable because of the copies and then how it's sustained over generations, which leads me to the third reason. And the third reason we can say that the Bible is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct is because of the life change that it brings. The reason we can put our hope and trust in what the message of the Bible is is because of the life change that it brings. So the question we have to ask as we read God's word is this, does it change us? And I have to say it does. You know, over the history of the world, as men and women have dove into the pages of this book, it has produced enormous changes in life and in culture. Is it produced enormous changes in life and culture? Now, yes, were there idiot Christians who did terrible things in the name of religion? Yes, they did. But I also believe that most of the time when that stuff happened, it wasn't because they were following God's word and did it. It's because they weren't following God's word and did it. But when people have followed God's word over culture, right, amazing things happen. It was followers of Christ under the direction of the Bible who started the first hospitals in the world. Why? Because Jesus healed people. And as, in a, as a reflection of Jesus' life, they wanted to heal people too. It was followers of Jesus who became, um, because the Bible talks about caring for orphans, that followers of Jesus created the first orphanages. It was followers of Jesus who, because biblically the, they understood that all people are made in the image of God, fought the injustice of slavery. And you know what the Bible? The Bible brings not only life change to the things in our culture, it brings life change to me as well. When I read God's word, it changes me. When I read what God has spoken, it gives me confidence. It brings me peace. It brings me life. It helps me with my relationships, with my shame, with my guilt. It aids me in life choices. The third reason why we can trust this as the ultimate source of truth in our lives is because it changes us when we read it. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, said, If you want true change, you must let the gospel argue with you. If you want true change, you must let the gospel, you must let the Bible argue with you. Listen, there are things in here that should mess with us. They should mess with us big time. We should be able to read this and go, wait a second, this, this seems different than what I think. This is different than how I'm living my life. It should mess with you. If the Bible hasn't messed with you in six months, if it's not stretching you, convicting you, changing you, you know what? You're not doing it right. 
I bet it's not the source of ultimate authority in your life. It doesn't have ultimate authority into your faith and your conduct. There is stuff that should mess with us. There are things in here that should mess with us, should challenge us, right? Things in here about how God hates divorce, despises it. It should mess with us as we think about the, how much that is rampant in our culture. What, what God thinks about welcoming foreigners in our midst in the Old Testament should mess us when it comes to refugees. And not just, when, just with public policy regarding refugees, but it should mess with us. In, am I doing anything to welcome refugees in my house and care for those that are, are kicked out of countries? There are things in here on, on marriage and relationships, how they're designed between a man and a woman that should mess with us. There are things about life and how each person has value and worth. And they have value and worth even if they sin differently than us or come in a different colored skin than us. There's hard teachings in here on lust and how not to look lustfully at others. And at the same time, how we should give up our freedom to dress in a certain way so that we don't make someone else stumble and fall if they're lusting after us. There are principles in here about what we chase after, including how we pursue things like money and fame. And that should mess with us as we're thinking about making a job change or getting a promotion or getting a raise when it, it's causing stress or takes us away from our family or makes us work on a Sunday morning. It should mess with us. There's things in here about how we should treat others in life with kindness and love and compassion and forgiveness. There's things in here about not being profane in our speech. Things in here about greed and lying. There's things all over this book that should mess with us on a daily basis. But as it messes with us, it changes us. It reforms us. It does a radical reformation in us. It makes us and molds us into the image of Jesus Christ. It helps us become the best versions of ourselves. Living a life with sola scriptura, scripture alone, is going to make you feel, at times, incredibly uncomfortable. But it's in the uncomfortability that life change happens. It's in the uncomfortability that, that we grow, that we flourish. Listen, there, I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat anything. There are things in here that are hard, that we wrestle with. That, that don't make sense to us. But at the end of the day, we have to ask this question, what is the ultimate source of authority in my life? What are the things that I'm going to listen to? What are the things that I'm going to trust? Is it, is it my family? Is it my faith tradition? Is it my pastor? Is it my culture? <coughs> or is it God's word to us that we are ultimate? You know, this is what Martin Luther 500 years ago had to wrestle with. He had to wrestle and ask that hard question. What is the source of authority in my life? How am I going to find God? How am I going to walk in the right relationship with him? And it was Martin Luther who was pouring over these words that was convicted and changed and challenged. He was reading Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Martin Luther was a man 
who was racked with guilt and brokenness. He felt like he could never, ever measure up to God. And I don't want to give too much of a preview next week where we're going to go. We're talking about grace alone and what grace alone means. But the reality is Martin Luther grew up in a culture where he said the only way you get access to God is you had to be perfect. You had to live your life holy. You had to do everything right. And he read those words. He said, wait a second. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Martin Luther read those words. A man who was depressed in anxiety, he, he felt like he could never measure up to God. He was racked with guilt. And he read those words, and it changed everything in him. After reading those words, the one source of the message of God, he went from a man who was stuck in guilt and shame to a man who experienced life, renewal, and power, and he turned the Christian world upside down. And in reading the word of God, reading this, it all began to make sense. Future weeks, we're going to look at those other solos. Russ, next week, is going to talk about grace alone. How that phrase, grace alone, changes everything. And then we're going to talk about faith alone and finish up with the glory of God alone. But the source of those things, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone, Christ alone, didn't get the source. That, that source of ultimate truth did not come in the world, did not come in the culture, did not come in all these other voices. It came in the message of Scripture alone, the ultimate source for our faith. It was a message for the church 500 years ago, and it's a message we need to hear today. The question I have is, what is the source of truth about God in your life? What voices do you listen to? Who is telling you about God? Is it what the world says? Is it what your political party says? Is it what your family says? What your faith tradition says? Is it what I say? Or is it what Scripture alone says? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this morning and a chance just to dive into your word just a little bit as we even talk about your word. And God, I am just grateful to you that you loved us so much that you didn't leave us in the dark. That you didn't just try to say, hey, go live for me and not give us any direction on how to do that. That you spoke to us and, and gave us words of, of encouragement, of challenge, that help us and lead us to Christ. We know that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the Alpha and Omega, that nothing, no one is saved apart from Jesus. But we thank you that the word of God is the message that we have that points us to him. I'm reminded of, in the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John, the opening chapters, it says, the word is with God and the word was God. And the word is referring to Jesus. And so we know that all scripture, all of God's word points to you, Jesus, that you are the salvation that we, that we need. You are the salvation, that the only salvation that we can have. And so, Lord, we thank you that you gave us this message, this word that points us to you so that we are not lost, that we are not struggling, that we don't know where to go. We have a source of, of, of truth for our faith, a source of truth for how we live our lives in accordance Lord, we recognize that there's parts of your word that are hard for us, things that we wrestle with, that we, in our heart of hearts, disagree with, that we don't want to accept. God, we know, Lord, that your word is a lamp to our feet. Your word is something that 
inspires us and grows us. And so, Lord, help us to trust it, even when we don't want to. Help us to obey it, even when we don't want to. Because we know, Lord, when we do that, we'll flourish. Life will happen. Joy will happen. Happiness will happen. Help us to walk in stuff. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. All God's people say.